the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Water science, water economics, water politics. It's all hard, right? It's complicated. But it's very important to regional Victoria and that's why you care. Matters in Canberra too. In fact, it matters right across the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Well, three things to do with the reset of the Basin Plan are happening today. Three key things, if you will. One, the government has announced how much interest there is from irrigators in selling water back to the government. And there is quite a lot. Two, the Productivity Commission has released its update on the Basin Plan. You've just been hearing about that in news. It says, in the last five years since the last Commission review, very little progress has been made on water recovery or on supply and constraints easing measures. It says that $13 billion, $13 billion isn't enough. It's going to take more money than that to get the water needed for the Basin Plan. And the third thing happening today, the government's legislation to reset the Basin Plan that all of this works into, it's getting ready to enter the Senate, where it will need votes from crossbenchers to pass. And so it's being examined in a Senate inquiry in Canberra today. Right now, in fact... We'll cross there for more soon and more detail from there as the afternoon goes on. We're going to look at all of that today on The Country Hour. You can have your say on why water is important to you and what you're hearing from the experts and from these key reports. You can send us a text 0467 842 722 or call 1300 977 2. But if water isn't your thing, don't worry. We're checking in on harvest today on The Country Hour too. And if you're out on the job, send me a pic. We can get... Pictures on the text line now, 0467 842 722. Emma Field's got you covered for rural news too. Emma? G'day, Warwick. The amount of Australian wine being exported has slumped to the lowest level in two decades. According to Wine Australia's latest export report, some of our biggest international markets, such as the UK and Canada, are buying far less Australian wine, especially cheaper wines less than $10 a bottle. And these figures don't include exports to China, Australia's most valuable export market until 2020, when anti-dumping tariffs effectively ended the trade. Wine Australia spokesman Peter Bailey says the downward trajectory is likely to continue, creating some big challenges for the industry. In terms of value, they declined by 11% in value and 4% in volume in the 12 months into September. So in value terms, we're at the lowest level for nearly a decade, and in volume terms, the lowest in nearly two decades. What's driving this? Look, this is reflecting the exceptionally tough um, global trading conditions at the moment that really have prevailed since 2020. Exports have declined to 26 of the top 30 markets, and that includes our key markets in the UK, US and Canada. Health and wellness trend um, is one of the more influential forces impacting on wine consumption over the longer term. And we've seen not only wine but all alcohol consumption fall. You know, some people are abstaining from drinking wine, others are drinking less but paying more, while some are also seeking no and low um, alcohol wine options too. And sticking with the wine industry, in South Australia's Clare Valley region, grape growers are assessing major frost damage from last week. Some growers are facing losses of up to 70%. Managing Director of Taylor's Wines, Mitchell Taylor, was hit by the frost event and he's also the chairman of the Clare Valley Wine and Grape Association. He says they're assessing damage from the frost which hit the region last Thursday. On our particular property, temperatures got recorded as low as minus four. 
not entirely across the entire Clare Valley region, but it does appear to be hitting a, a lot of the, the southern part of the valley where where our family winery is in the, the, the sub-districts of Watervale, Leasingham and Auburn. So, of course, there is a lot of variation. We really do feel for all our, our grower community and the winemakers that have had quite a difficult uh, year of late. And this one has really, um, you know, come with little warning late in the spring season. So um, we're, we're still out there assessing the, the total damage, but we're getting together and, and, and sharing our thoughts as a association on where we can help our members to make sure that, you know, we can work through this latest um, situation. And from frost damage to heat damage, WA mango growers are counting the cost of two record-breaking hot days in Carnarvon earlier this month, with one grower expecting to have lost almost half his crop. The record for the hottest October day in Carnarvon was broken on the 15th of October before being topped the very next day. Mango grower Eddie Smith says about 45 to 50% of his crop has been destroyed. It was at a bad time of the year for us as well because the fruit was still very small uh, from marble to a little bit bigger in size so the flower panicles were still very straight which poked the fruit right out into the full sunlight and if they didn't actually burn they turned into raisins in fact. So, uh, yeah, it's been uh, quite a significant event. Two days of on our property of 45, 44 to 45 degrees with no humidity and it just, yeah, it's destroyed. To New South Wales now, where State Nationals MP Wes Fang is accusing the Labor government of ignoring parliamentary process by authorising aerial shooting of feral horses in Kosciuszko National Park before it's been examined by an upper house inquiry. State Environment Minister Penny Sharp says the decision was made on advice from the Wild Horse Community Advisory Panel and took into consideration more than 11,000 public submissions, of which more than 80% supported aerial culling. Meanwhile, an upper house inquiry, which is also examining the proposal, is yet to hold its first hearing. Mr Fang, who's on the inquiry committee, says the government should have waited. It's irrelevant as to how many submissions are in favour or not. It's about the evidence that's being used to support the Minister's decision. It would appear that that is rubbery at best. What the parliamentary inquiry was going to do, which is to look at the methodology, look at the count, look at um, previous issues around other culls in national parks. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field, there with Rural News. A big shout-out to Mark, who's mowing silage in Gippsland. He sent us a photo of some very green grass uh, going under the mower. It looks great, Mark. I hope you're enjoying your day. And if you're out there today and you are a rainfall record keeper, I know for many of you the last day of the month is the final day for rainfall stats. You'll have your monthly rainfall total all set. Bruce at Merbu North got in really early for me last night, and I loved it. So getting in early for tomorrow's rainfall question, Warwick Long, just past 200 millimetres for October at Merbu North. In true farmer style, it's highly possible I'll be complaining that I'd like some more rain before the end of November, though. Loved that, Bruce. Thank you for that. If you've got a updated figure you'd like to send it through, I'm going to discuss a lot of water first. So you've probably got about half an hour. Get your October rainfall figure into it, 0467 842 
7-2. Let's talk Murray-Darling Basin plan right now, though. Irrigators uh, have volunteered to sell the federal government nearly twice the volume of water it hoped to purchase from six different valleys in the Murray-Darling Basin. This week, the government revealed it had received more than 250 offers, which added up to more than double the amount of water a tender sought to recover. Now, it's a smaller tender than what's to come, but is it an interesting insight? Let's go through that. That news comes as the Productivity Commission says proposed changes to the Murray-Darling Basin plan won't be enough to see the $13 billion plan's objectives fulfilled. Clint Jasper's been looking through all of this today for ABC Rural and spoke to him a little bit earlier on the program. Clint Jasper, welcome back to the country. Thanks, Wes. Should we start with a buyback tender? What tender was this? What water is the government looking to get here? So the tender was for 44.3 gigalitres to finish one part of the bridging the gap target under the Murray-Darling Basin plan. So there was a, a little chunk that the federal government needed to make up, and it decided to do this through strategic buybacks in six, six different valleys. So those were the Condamine Boulogne in Queensland, the Barwon Darling, New South Wales Border Rivers, Namoy, Lachlan and Murray Catchments in New South Wales. And that tender opened uh, uh, a couple of months ago and they've been sorting through the offers. We still don't know the final prices that have been offered. Those are still being uh, finalised, but the federal government confirmed today that offers have been accepted and they received actually 250 offers and the total amount of what they were offered added up to more than double the amount of water they were seeking. So they've described that as a very positive response to that strategic uh, purchase. And it's they've obviously got more than enough that they need to meet that target. So they're not going to buy the double amount. They'll strategically choose how much to, to make up that 40 gigalitres they're looking to purchase? That's right. So they won't be buying double the 44.3 gigalitres, 88.6 gigalitres, sorry. Um, They'll just be buying the amount that they tended for. So the government says, uh, has released the demand in terms of the amount of people wanting to sell, but they didn't say how much. Why? They are still finalising all of those details, I guess, dotting the I's and crossing the T's on on the contracts they'll undertake with those irrigators. The results will eventually be published on the Oz Tender website. I think there's very strict rules about the disclosure in these situations. So we will eventually know the price. It's just not information that we have at this very moment. This was the first step or the toe in the water, if you will, back to buybacks from the new federal government. Um, legislation's going to parliament now and, and the new water minister, Tanya Plibersek, has been very frank in putting buybacks back on the table for the 450, the extra 450 gigalitres for the basin plan. Uh, and speculation is she could buy all of that water. Um, can anything be read into the success of this tender and what it could mean for possible future water buybacks? We don't know whether the response will be the same in the southern basin as it is in those northern basin valleys. There's obviously a more, uh, I guess, robust and deep market for water in the southern basin. If someone desperately needed to sell their water, they could go out into the market right now and, and sell it for a price that's fairly transparent. But the federal government is taking it as a sign of encouragement that there isn't as much opposition to buybacks as um, 
you know, is sometimes suggested and going all the way back to when this process was announced, you know, Tanya Plibersek, the water minister, has said all along that, you know, farmers are essentially lining up to sell their water to the federal government. So I guess it, from the federal government's point of view, it does give them some encouragement that they can press forward and buy more water. But when you start getting up to those really large volumes, there's, of course, uh, a huge shortfall in the um, sustainable diversion limit adjustment mechanism projects, anywhere between 190 and 300 gigalitres that uh, where all, all the basin state governments and the federal government are working out how to gap, and then the 450. So there's a lot of water to be purchased, and this was a, a, a relatively small limited tender in the northern basin. So it'll be interesting to see what the response is as these buybacks are rolled out more widely across the basin. Which almost brings us to our next point, and I'll get to the Productivity Commission in just in a moment. But basically, to sum up, this was a 40 gigalitre tender with over 80 gigalitres of uh, offers. Uh, and yet the government, as you've just said, has 450 and, and close to 200 um, mm. extra gigalitres of water it needs to get back. So nearly over 600 gigalitres of water um, it needs to, to be looking at in the future. So there's a lot to come yet. Indeed, and not all of that will necessarily have to be brought back. The In um, announcing the federal government's proposed changes to the Basin Plan legislation, Tanya Plibersek has said all along that the more that can be recovered through projects, um, infrastructure projects, things like that, the less that they'll have to buy back. And that's kind of the preferred method of recovery, which is why the federal government is giving these projects more time to be finished and state governments more time to come up with new projects. But the prospect of having, um, you know, remaining amounts purchased is very much on the table. And that takes us to the Productivity Commission. A, a report out today from the Productivity Commission says $13 is not enough to deliver the Basin Plan. Why? Uh, there's a number of things going on there. You know, essentially, the federal government's proposed changes to the Basin Plan give the existing suite of projects more time to be finished. But a lot of these projects are kind of dead in the water, you know, You'd be, you would struggle to find a project in the basin that would plug the gap left by the failed Menindee Lakes project, you know, nearly 100 gigalitres towards that SIDLAM adjustment mechanism target of the 605. And in the background of all of that, there was a, a really interesting chart in the Productivity, Productivity Commission's interim report that just showed that over the life of these projects, the cost of doing construction has just risen so much. So the projects actually cost more today than they did when they were first put on the books. And then it also goes into, uh, you know, when you start looking at uh, purchases towards the 450, obviously water rights are more expensive now than they were, um, you know, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. So just the cost of, I guess, implementing the plan has risen beyond the $13 billion that is allocated to getting it finished. And I should take a step back, Clint. Can you can you explain the Productivity Commission's look at the Basin Plan and uh, why this document is seen as an important development today? The Productivity Commission is tasked every five years with doing a review of the Basin Plan's implementation. So they just look at, you know, the bits that have been done so far and the bits that have been left to do. And I guess covering the report that was released uh, in 2018 that looked at the five years of implementation, 
Um, the Productivity Commission, you know, right up the top of this interim report says that very little progress has been made since the last report. A lot of the complaints or a lot of the red flags that they raised in 2018 continue to be fluttering in the wind today. The fact that state governments are pushing ahead with these projects that are very risky in their outcomes and unlikely to be completed on time. The Productivity Commission was scathing of those in 2018 and they're pretty much all still on the books today. So it's a very um, Productivity Commission style look at just how this plan is being implemented and the risks that they see into the future of uh, things that might trip up the plan in getting to full implementation. The other thing that jumps out is the call for more accountability. There are always calls in reports like this for more transparency and accountability, but the Productivity Commissioner are suggesting the, 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 the minister responsible for the Basin Plan give an update on the progress of some of these things yearly. How likely is that, do you think? That one was a, a bit of a strange one to read for me because we do see so much periodic accounting of things that are going on in the base. And so I, I guess the only real change there is that they're being tabled in Parliament rather than being added to the ever-expanding pile of progress um, um, reports on the Murray-Darling Basin plan. The most interesting one for me, though, um, you know, looking forward into an environment where potentially the Commonwealth is going to be buying more water in the marketplace was the suggestion from the Productivity Commission that an independent Commonwealth corporate entity be established that can act more nimbly in the market and without some of the arduous uh, tender and procurement rules that a government department has. And that might be a, a quicker and cheaper way of meeting some of these targets. Because it's saying um, as it stands at the moment, um, the buybacks can influence the water market. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's pretty established that, you know, uh, if the government undertakes a tender and some big prices paid are uh, revealed, that that could have a market-altering impact. Also, just the notion that you're reducing supply in the market, what irrigation licences that are actually on the market could have a, an inflationary impact as well. So everyone is very cautious about the market impact that these buybacks could have. What are the next important dates for the Basin Plan? So the federal government's bill was referred to the Senate Environment and Communications Legislation Committee, which has been talking about the bill this morning in the Senate. That's due to hand its inquiry findings down on November 8th. And then on November the 20th, the Productivity Commission is expected to hand down its final report into the five-year review of Murray-Darling Basin Plan implementation. So be a busy month coming up. For the Basin Plan, Clint Jasper, thank you very much for joining us. Too easy. Clint Jasper there has been looking into the details of the government's tender for a water buybacks, double the uh, offers than what the government actually needs in terms of water in their first dip the toe into the market of the Northern Basin to see how many willing sellers there were. Also, uh, uh, talking about the Productivity Commission's interim report into the Basin Plan as well. That's not all. That was a big meat sandwich of uh, water policy for you. That is not all the water policy being de debated today. The government's legislation to reset the Murray-Darling Basin Plan is getting ready to enter the Senate, where it will need votes from crossbenchers to pass. And it's being examined with that in mind in a Senate inquiry today in Canberra. Right now, 
in fact. The reset of the Basin Plan extends the deadline for the plan by two years. Also gives time for states to develop some of the projects that Clint was just talking about to save water in exchange for more money from the federal government. And also the uh, states have to provide their support for more water buybacks. Victoria is the state that refuses to sign up to that deal because the state opposes more water buybacks. And that was put to the test today. South Australian Commissioner for the River Murray, Richard Beasley SC, was in front of the Senators first up today, criticising Victoria's position under evidence. Victoria has its position. Victoria's position, as best I understand it, is we're against this because buybacks do tremendous damage. Now, they assert that and they rely on uh, economic evidence um, that um, other economists have doubts about. Um, I do think you've got to be... um, (laughs) In the end, you've got to make your decisions about the impacts of buybacks on data right and economic analysis that's not me saying that people that actually live in the basin and that are fearful or have seen negative outcomes from the purchase of water of which undoubtedly there were some shouldn't be heard that they should um i don't live in the murray darling basin and i don't blithely um just say well bad luck you know, we've got to recover this water. If it impacts you, it's bad luck. That's not how I feel. Mm. Um, uh, if there are any proven substantial negative outcomes from the recovery of water, um, the government should step in and have adjustment compensation measures. I've always thought that. Um, but having said that, This is a massive... The Water Act Basin Plan is just a massive environmental economic reform. It's going to have positive and it's going to have negatives and it's for government to manage that, not me. That's SA Commissioner for the River Murray, Richard Beasley there. Irrigators say uh, extra buybacks will take extra water out of the system that will damage agriculture and communities of the basin. And here is Zara Lowin, the interim CEO of the National Irrigators Council, saying 40% of high security water would be bought under the government's new plan. Um, sorry, if I could just jump in on the back as well. So um, our peak industry groups have sought legal advice on that question around whether the bill will actually enable enhanced environmental outcomes to be sought through any other method other than just buybacks. Um, and the, that advice we've tabled with this committee um, and it's quite clearly says that buybacks are the only option on the table despite what the government is saying. So that's something that we find obviously concerning from an industry perspective um, because we know that 450 gigalitres is a very large amount of what's remaining in the productive pool, um, particularly in the southern connected valleys. Um, it represents close to 40% of the high security water that's left in those systems. So it's very concerning for our industry's perspective. But as Jeremy was saying, um, from an environmental perspective, it's also rather concerning because what the environment needs most at the moment, which are things that Jeremy spoke to about um, carp control, habitat, 
um, restoration, addressing fish passageways, a lot of those contributing drivers to the recent Benindi fish kills, um, they're all things that this bill allow and we'll just see a further neglect of these complementary measures, which is depriving the ecosystems in the basin of what they actually need, um, whilst also really damaging our communities and our industries. So that's the National Irrigators Council. The New South Wales Irrigators Council giving evidence as well today. Claire Miller from that group gave her view on why government buybacks are still popular with farmers, yet not farming groups. The fact is we already, if farmers are looking for raising capital for various reasons or because they wish to retire or whatever they want to do, they already have a water market in which they can sell their water. They don't need the Commonwealth to come and buy it from them to do that. But the thing is that when the farmers sell, you know, but if the government buys that water, it's gone out of the consumptive pool forever. Um, and it's not the farmers that suffer those impacts, actually. It's the community that's left behind. So the farmers leave or they change their, what they're producing and they go to dry land, which has much fewer jobs and fewer services associated with it. Whatever they do with that money, farmers are right. It's the community that gets left behind. So it's the towns that lose the jobs, that lose the families. For example, if the rice industry starts producing less rice as a consequence, which they will, as a consequence of any further water taken out, they've already reduced their production because of the past recovery, the farmers will, they're mixed farmers, they'll do something else. But what do you do about that rice mill in Daniloquin when that closes with 200 jobs that go? So it's a community that suffers the lasting impacts and I haven't seen any structural adjustment programs either in the basin or anywhere else in Australia that have actually worked, that have actually you know, come to grips with when you have major reforms like this that genuinely sort of go, you know, provide any genuine and lasting structural adjustment to those communities and towns. And the Productivity Commission has picked that up as well and they have said there are very few examples of successful adjustment programs in the basin or anywhere else in Australia. So when we get these sort of promises of you know, it's okay, there's going to be community assistance. That community assistance is vague. We, they, they just talk about, you know, we always talk about it. It ends up, whatever the good intentions are, it always seems to just end up as a bunch of grant programs. Maybe the council gets, you know, $200,000 to do an economic diversity development strategy, but there is no money or assistance. The government is not there in the long term for the actual doing part of it. That is Claire Miller from the New South Wales Irrigators Council speaking there. And the last group that I could watch before stepping into the studio to bring the country out to you today were Indigenous leaders. Indigenous groups gave evidence that they're still waiting on the long-promised $40 million for cultural water entitlements within the Murray-Darling Basin. It has been government policy for some time. Fred Hooper, former chair of Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations, hoped the new bill in front of the Senate on the Basin Plan would speed up that process. Here's his update on where things stood with cultural flows. It's taken too long. We, well, I was uh, the chair of the Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations at the time. We were asked to put a submission to the department in terms of how we feel that 40 million could, could be uh, dispersed throughout the Northern Basin or the 20 million in the Northern Basin. And I believe uh, the Murray Lower Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations did the same thing. We've had seven years of consultation. I'm going to another meeting in November in Canberra to work out how this money is going to be going to be rolled out 
in the you know in the Murray Darling Basin. Certainly, um, when we, we we had a meeting in um, in Dubbo, one of the proposals I put forward was that I believe that you know with all of the the, the negotiations or all of the consultations that, that's going on, um, that there should be a provision in this amendment for the establishment of a First Nations cultural water holder in the Murray Darling Basin with similar powers to buy water, with similar, um, I suppose, amendments to that would be to gift water to First Nations once the First Nations have the ability to manage and own that that water licence as well. I also believe that, you know, the, the 40 million has devalued over the years as well. So there should be an increase in the 40 million to at least double or to at least 100, 100 million dollars. But along with that should come the mechanisms uh, to support that the purchase of, of cultural water, what we call cultural economic water, within a system that, that has the professionals to advise the First Nations water holder similar to, you know, the, the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder as well. Um, so mechanisms, I believe, would be, you know, we're looking at a trust model. The Northern Basin Aboriginal Nations put up a trust model to the department, which was, which was rejected by the government of the day and, and um, as well. So s firmly believes that, you know, I believe that there should be uh, a First Nations uh, water holder for the Murray-Darling Basin with all of the, the administrative support um, similar to the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. That's Fred Hooper giving evidence to the Senate inquiry into the Basin legislation and Basin Plan extension uh, today in Canberra, really a short time ago. Uh, Malcolm, I'll come to you if you can hold on the line in just a moment. Before that, though, I better head to regional news headlines with Millie Spencer today. Good afternoon, Millie. Good afternoon, Was. A group of 20-year-old friends from Gippsland were involved in a fatal car crash in the state southeast overnight. The four young people were travelling along the Prince's Freeway in Newborough just after 3am this morning when the driver lost control of the vehicle and crashed into a barrier. One man died at the scene and the remaining three passengers were taken to hospital. An independent monitor will be appointed at the Glenelg Shire Council in the state southwest. The Shire has lost three councillors and two chief executives in the past year amid reports of division among the council. The ABC understands an independent monitor is due to be appointed and announced by the state government later this afternoon. Hepburn Shire Mayor Brian Hood says it's disappointing the Commonwealth Bank is reducing services to customers at its Dalesford branch. From November 20th, the branch will close to local customers in person from 1pm as staff work for its nationwide phone-based service from 2pm daily. Commonwealth Bank has reassured local customers they'll still be able to do their banking at the Dalesford Post Office in the afternoons. Former Richmond, former Richmond player Phil Egan will face the court next month after his committal mentioned in a fraud case that the Melbourne Magistrate Court was adjourned yesterday. The author of the Hawthorne Football Club's Cultural Safety Review is facing multiple charges, including using a false document and obtaining secret commissions. The charges relate to a Victoria Police investigation into allegations of financial mismanagement at the Murray Valley Aboriginal Corporation in Robinvale between 2010 and 2015, where Egan was CEO 
between 2010 and 2012. Mr Egan previously denied any wrongdoing and the case will be heard on December 1st. And for more news anytime, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks, Millie. Millie Spencer there with regional news headlines. You're listening to The Country Hour. The weather report is on the way. Just before we get there, let's head to Malcolm in Wangaratta on 1300 977 Good G'day, Malcolm. Yeah, g'day, Warwick. Thank you for taking me call, Warwick. Look, yep. I've, been, yep. I've been involved with Golden Murray Water for probably 25 years, the last last uh, 15 years as Deputy Chair and chair, current Chairman of the Water Service Committee for Gold Murray Water. Um, the, the problems we face, this buyback is going to exacerbate the problem um, that, that that's already happened in, our, in Victoria, as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, farmers will just uh, sell up their water they might be on a channel. They might that might only leave two or three people on a channel of water, which we some ten years ago we spent two billion dollars modernising all the channel network around Shepparton and all that area. And all that area was set up originally when they built the Hume Dam. So, Malcolm, uh, your point is that the more water bought out uh, and the fewer irrigators remain, the less that whole system is viable. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It makes it inefficient. Makes it puts the puts the added cost back onto the people that are left on those channels. But um, yes, it's uh, it's um, not good. Um, the, look, there are a number of things. Uh, got, got, the, they haven't listened to us with the separation of land from water, which was unbundling. That shouldn't have occurred. And also. Uh, the people in power still think that if you let one megalitre go of the Hume Weir, that it's going to make it all the way down to Robinvale. So obviously, obviously, if where you can buy cheap land on large scale, such as right down Robinvale, South Australia, or on, on or and then you that- need more water to get it there. Hey, Malcolm, I've got to keep moving just for the weather, but thank you for calling and thanks for giving your view as well. I hope we got some of those points through there, Lincoln Trainer. Is waiting patiently. I have to go to him, the Bureau of Meteorology senior forecaster, to take us through the weather for the next week or so. G'day, Lincoln. G'day, Warwick. How are you going? I'm I'm good. How are we looking? Is it a calmer day yeah, today? Yeah, calming, calming down. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we're definitely we're kind of in the wake of this cold front and series of troughs that pushed through yesterday. Now we're seeing a high pressure ridge slowly build east across the state, which brings some more settler conditions, but um, still some cool conditions. Um, it's directing a light to mod southwesterly flow, so moderate flow uh, across the state, bringing some partly cloudy to cloudy conditions um, across the south of the state. We do see a bit of sunshine uh, with a few clouds about in the north, um, and uh, in the south we're kind of seeing some isolates, the last parts of some isolated showers uh, at times uh, south of the divide. But we're not expecting much shower activity by the evening uh, for those looking to enjoy Halloween. Um, And the temperatures today in the mid to high teens across the state and relatively mild, always mild in the northwest. 
Um, some some warning updates. Um, if we think about the flood warnings, uh, as of as of yesterday, as we kind of spoke, there's a final flood warning for the Murray River uh, at Barham, and that is final and is no longer above minor. So that ends all flood warnings um, for Victoria and Australia, actually, at the moment. So that's one good thing at the moment. Um, in terms of fire warnings, uh, we always like to keep an eye on where's that going at the moment, and uh, we're not expected to see uh, any any fire dangers reaching uh, above moderate until Friday. Friday we might see uh, a high fire danger. It's not at warning level in the Mallee and Wimmera. That's because the wind's picking up a little bit then. But uh, at the moment it's pretty quiet, uh, but we don't want to jinx that, so that's uh, important. And then... Um, Beyond that, I don't think... Uh, I was actually just looking. I thought you might be interested. I know. I don't know if many of the listeners are, are close to the coast, but um, we've just had a bit of an update from our uh, coastal hazards team that the sea levels are exceeding the highest astronomical tide today at locations, and, but no impacts expected. But the possible nuance flooding are uh, a risk for lakes entrance, so that's something for them as well down at lakes entrance. Um, in terms of Wednesday, it's pretty quiet. It settles condi- uh, as... Uh, conditions uh, continue to ease, partly cloudy with sunny breaks in the south, sunny in the north, mild with temperatures in the high teens to low 20s, warmer and sunnier in the northwest with 24 at Swan Hill and Mildura. Thursday, uh, really the conditions are similar all the way to Saturday. Uh, it's a mainly southerly flow, temps in the low to mid 20s and warmer in the northwest. Uh, there could be the odd shower about at times, mainly in the south of the ranges um, and uh, close to Gippsland coast, but there's not going to be much around. Uh, Sunday, slightly warmer again, uh, at a degree or two to the previous few days, um, and the te- uh, that will be because the winds are beginning to swing to the east and northeast. So really, there's not much going on for the next few days, but the one thing I hope you were going to ask me, Warwick, was about the frost warnings. Were you going to ask yep. me about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get into it. Frost warnings. What have you got for us? <laughs> That's probably the one thing to really focus on. Um, at the moment, we're not going to have a frost warning, but... Uh, it is very, very close uh, in the Wimmera and the northeast. Uh, we're seeing temperatures get down to about one, and we're kind of talking about that today at the Stevenson screen height of where we measure. If it's at one, it can go even lower uh, on the ground. So I would be keeping an eye out in the Wimmera and the northeast on Wednesday morning, and then potential patchy frost again in similar areas on Thursday. So the next two mornings, they're the ones to keep a bit. Bit of an eye yeah. out for some frost damage. And we heard earlier about some South Australian frost damage in their wine grapes in Clare Valley. So certainly uh, it is certainly something around at the moment. And Lincoln, I have a page and a half of October rainfall figures to go through. So unless there's anything else I need to know. Uh, mate, that's it. Go. Enjoy the rainfall figures. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Lincoln Trader <laughs> okay. there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. I did say we've got some October rainfall figures. Bruce had over 200 millimetres Merbu Northway for October. Ruth in rural Lee and Gatha can add to that with 195 millimetres of rain in that part of the world. 70 millimetres at Hawkdale West for the month for Paul. 50 millimetres at Carowinna for October from Chris in the far northwest. Robin Chilton had 69 for October. So far, 556 for the year. Nice. Uh, 
monthly rainfall was for Neerham in West Gippsland, 206.5 millimetres. El Nino has drowned, but FYI, last year the October fall was a high uh, 221 millimetres, says Mary. Yeah, well, that's quite similar. It wouldn't be that similar in north of the divide, Mary. 48 millimetres for October, 686 for the year so far. Extremely wet June, followed by drier than normal spring grass. Pretty slow. This spring, says Scott, out Hamilton Way. Thank you very much for that. A couple more before we move on. John, 179.5 millimetres for October. 5.18 year to date. October's made a bit of a difference to the running total. October average is 72. Wow, you've had 100 millimetres more than average. Uh, that's amazing. Make of that what you will, says John. In brackets, he's the hectares, not acres guy. John, love that. Thank you. And rainfall at Addington near Ballarat for the month of October was 63 millimetres for Graham compared to October last year of 246 millimetres. Big difference, says Graham. I love that, Graham. Thank you for sending that through. You can keep those. Uh, rainfall figures for October coming through. We might go through a few more of those as we move through the afternoon together. But let's talk harvest now because, well, that's getting cracking for many of you. Despite not growing up in fa- in a farming family, Kobe Pierce will harvest 18,000 acres, acres this time, sorry, John, of his own crop this year. He's grown it on lease country in the Mallee and across the river in New South Wales, secured after years of ag contracting to establish equity. He made a start on harvest and Angus Verley spoke to him about how it's going. Yeah, we started on Wednesday last week uh, on some barley. So far, there's the yields are sort of there, a little bit less than what I was thinking. Um, having a few quality issues, actually, it's going bar two. I think the, the hot weather we had grand final weekend, AFL grand final weekend, got to 38 degrees here with a northerly wind, and it, it just took the edge off it and... We're starting to get a, a lot of screenings in the sample, so taking the edge off the, the top of it for us. And, Kobe, did you just uh, miss out on that, that spring rain that you needed to, to, to boost those those yields up? Yeah, we did in a way. Um, funny you say that. After that hot weekend, grand final weekend, we actually got 56 mil of rain on the Monday, and it was just a few days too late. Yeah, okay. So what at that stage, it didn't do a, a whole lot of good? No, no, it did. It's helped our later sown crops, but the stuff we're harvesting at the moment was um, sown in the first week of May. And yeah, our earlier crops seem to have suffered more. We're usually here in the Mallee, we're the other way around. Our our earlier crops are usually our good crops, but this year, you know, seems to be the, the complete opposite. And how about earlier in the season, Kobe? I know a lot of people had a, a wet June and that was when the majority of their rain fell, but what's it been like for you? Yeah, it did. We actually had a, a very wet cropping um, nearly right through. And July was pretty good. Got a bit of rain, but then it, it sort of turned off and we didn't really get much rain at all um, through August, September. But the crops did reasonably well because of the subsoil moisture from last spring. There was a lot of moisture left in the profile. Kobe, we've spoken in the past about your, your own journey, I suppose, and not um, not being an intergenerational farmer and trying to get some skin in the game yourself and farming your own right and looking at land prices having gone through the roof and that, that being out of reach. But but you are farming in your own right now. Just talk me through sort of what you're doing and, and how you've managed that. Yeah, it's, it's been a tough slog. Um, 
as you know, we've been hay contractors and ran a few trucks over the last 10 years and I've sort of used that to, to pay for my hobby of farming. Farming's the end goal. That's where I always wanted to be. Um, and not having parents in farming has made it even harder, I suppose. You, you don't get dad's track to the harvest your first crop and and so forth. But, um, yeah, we just went down the, the road of leasing because it was a way to get me foot in the door and it makes it hard uh, financially leasing it all because the bank sort of don't want to look at you. But, um, yeah, I've, I'm working with some pretty good people that have helped me along the way with their land and, yeah, we've finally gotten over that hurdle and it's it's been, like I said, a hard slog, but we've got there. And you've gone down the, the leasing path in a, in a big way in terms of your scale, haven't you? Yeah, well, that's the way I found, you know, you can't buy a block of dirt now and have the block of dirt pay for itself. It's The price is just too far beyond the, the price per acre. So I've just found I've, you know, got to go big to to start purchasing land and having the extra acres of lease and hopefully make a bit out of that to start buying land. And how much are you actually cropping this year? Uh, we've put in just over 18,000 acres this year. So we've had a big jump in the in the last 12 months, leased a little bit more land around Monangatang and some more up at Newston in New South Wales, which is where we're harvesting at the moment. And, Kobe, as you sort of indicated, that with such a large amount of lease country, those would be big lease payments that you need to be making sure that you're keeping up with. Yeah, you're not wrong there, yeah. It's uh, very big lease payments, but at, at the, the current interest rate, it's probably cheaper than paying interest only on uh, on payments on land. And at this stage, you, you still have that ambition of eventually owning your own land? Yeah, yeah, that's the end goal, is to start buying some land in the near future. Yeah, around Manangatang to hopefully set myself and my family up there for the future. It's Mally, grain grower, Kobe Pierce speaking with Angus Verley about quite the journey. And John, this one's just for you, 18,000 acres. Google's telling me is 7,284 hectares. Uh, important to get into the metric system sometimes, isn't it? Let's talk hay season now. The hay season is certainly looking positive with higher than expected yields and quality Good prices setting up a good season ahead for many farmers. Rob Pickles is a Central Victorian hay contractor and producer and says it's a complete turnaround from this time last year. Ain't that the truth? He spoke with Eden Hennon about what he's seeing in Northern Victoria at the moment. Uh, yeah, looking pretty good. We've got a positive outlook. Um, prices are good. Quality's looking pretty good. Uh, yields are up there, are better than expected. Dissuading with Cooler conditions are slowing dry times down a little bit to get the hay in a bale. You say, it's, it's, has it been quite wet lately? Nah, not moist. It is the colder climate. Um, it's just slowed down now, uh, dry times for hay on the ground to get the picture out of it before we can bale it back, back in with the dew moisture. So basically, when we from the day we cut hay, we've got to get all the plant moisture out of it and get it down to 0% plant moisture and then bale it back in with uh, dew moisture from the night air. Uh, and you were saying, I guess, it's just taking a bit to dry out, but compared to this time last year where you're based in northern Victoria, things are looking very different this season. Yeah, certainly a lot better. A lot uh, Having got the uh, floodwaters and that that we had last year, um, yeah, and the crop 
quality just there, yeah, it's a lot, lot more positive outlook this season. Are you just servicing northern Victoria or are you spending time in other parts of the state? Uh, I used to travel around a little bit, but yeah, just sort of home base now. So sort of, yeah, working at about a 30k radius of home pretty well. Uh, and you said that yields are, are up th- higher than you thought they'd be. Yeah, yep. Um, just, yeah, better than expected. We had a sort of pretty wet winter uh, with a dry finish. And then, uh, yeah, just a bit of rain there about Almore Field Day, start of October, sort of, yeah, just finish crops off the way they should be for grain and hay. And the hay that was cut previous to the rain still seems visually pretty good. Uh, so my may tell a different story, though, uh, with anything that was cut before the rain. But at this stage, the visual look of the hay is still pretty good. What are farmers saying? Uh, yeah, no, they're all pretty positive. They're sort of anyone that did have hay cut previous to rain, they're still pretty happy considering their grain's gonna gonna carry through and finish and reasonable yields, that sort of thing. So yeah, no, sort of everyone seems pretty positive on the current season. And prices, hay prices are looking quite good at the moment as well. They are, yes. Supply and demand's there. Um, yeah, export and domestic prices are there, so yeah, so certainly we haven't got it till it's in a bale, but at this stage it's all looking like it's going to be a very positive finish to the season. Sort of just concentrating on getting the hay done and then moving on to grain harvest, I guess. So um, potential talk of the Larnania picking back up sort of mid-November on was a bit of a concern, but at the end of the day we can't control weather, so we've just got to move forward with it and worry about what we can control. That is hay contractor in central Victoria, Rob Pickles, speaking there to Eden Hennon. And you're listening to The Country Hour. Plenty of your texts coming in with October rainfall for us. It was wide and varied month. How are these two next to each other? Ararat rainfall for October, 21 millimetres. It's dry. Right next to that is October, 211 millimetres at Fish Creek. Literally 10 times the Ararat rainfall. Incredible. Bart from Birchip, 18.75 millimetres for October when you're into the decimal points, Bart. It is concerning, isn't it? Uh, 35.5 millimetres for October, 35 millimetres on the first Monday, 0.5 millimetres yesterday. Could echo almost everything Kobe had said of his harvest so far. Great story of having a go. All the best to the rest of the Mallee croppers for a successful and safe harvest, says Daniel at Mildura as well. Love that, Daniel. Thank you for sending that through. Helen, love hearing from you too. We'll talk about how dry it was in your part of the world. Hi, was. We measured 158.5 millimetres in October, more than the previous five months combined here in Gifford. Wow, Helen. Thank you for sending that through. And Rusty, 33 millimetres this October, 433 for the year, a lot less pasture growth this spring in southwest Victoria. Rusty, thank you for that information too. Love when you get into that kind of detail. Let's get into the detail of the markets now. And I'll come back to more of your October rainfall texts. If you're going to send them through, 0467 842 722. We'll start with the sheep and lamb market reports and we'll go to Ballarat and Shiona Lamb. Take it away, Shiona. 
Good afternoon. Land numbers increased to 27,000. Quality improved over the lightweight categories. This reflected in the prices, although there was still a range from plain to excellent trade and heavy lands presented in very good condition, with a portion of the yarding showing dryness in the skins and were often discounted. All the usual buying group attended, but not all operated fully in an erratic market throughout. Light lands to the trade sold 5 to 12 dearer, while the store and secondary types sold to 6 cheaper. Medium and heavy trade sold to eight softer in places, and heavy export weight sold to a top of $178 a head, mostly selling firm to a few dollars cheaper. Lambs back to the paddock sold 12 to $88 a head for the lightweights and 74 to 109 for the lambs over 18 kilos. Lambs to the trade to suit MK orders gained the most interest, with the improvement in quality made 45 to $89 a head. Lambs to the trade 18 to 22 sold 82 to 118. 22 to 26 made 112 to $143 a head. Export lambs over 26 sold 145 to $178 a head. There is still 3,900 sheep to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Shiona. Let's go to the cattle markets now. And Leanne Dax is at Wodonga. Good afternoon. Numbers jumped up to just over 1,500 cattle. And 535 cows helped make up the numbers. Quality was quite good. However, the market at times was quite erratic, with a big price variance across grass-finished heifers and veal. Heavy export cattle were in reasonable numbers, but competition fell away quickly and prices did drop 20 cents. Veal found some legs jumping 60 cents for quality calves. Prices ranged from 155 to 326. Trade heifers were back 10 to 30 cents, 155 to 215. Feeder heifers, medium weight, slipped 10, 145 to 178. Trade steers, very few to quote, sold 18 cents cheaper, 190 to 236. Heavy steers, one nine and bullocks, 194 to 226. Heavy cows were back 7, 178 to 203. Leader type C's 3, 150 to 172. And the better bulls, 175 to 208. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Love to know what you're doing in the background there, Leanne, but thank you very much for that report. Let's go to Nicole Varley, who's at Shepparton for us. Good afternoon. We had 1,030 exports and 265 trade cattle penned. There were greater numbers and better quality runs of heavy steers and bullocks this sale. The over 600 kilo steers actually met a dearer trend to last sale. Beef cows unfortunately slipped in price, while the dairy portion remained firm. Majority of the user buyers were in attendance, although feedlotter orders were very subdued. The trade cattle were of mixed quality and prices slipped back. Several of the usual restock orders were absent. The best of the vealers made to 278. Yearling steers ranged from 175 to 220. Not many young heifers about this sale. Prices there, 144 to 210. Frisian heavy Frisian steers reached 188. 400 to 500 kilo C3, C4 steers, 165 to 220. 5 to 600 kilo steers, 196 to 235. While the heavy bullocks made to 247. The beef cows slipped 5 to 9 cents and made between 133 to 192. And the dairy proportion remained firm to be 125 to 165. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. Thanks very much for that, Nicole. That's about all the time we have for you on the country. Just a couple more October rainfall texts for you. This one from Caniva West, 15.6 millimetres in Caniva West, fluffing dry. Had to be careful with that one, but thank you for providing the technical term. Uh, elsewhere, Peter in South Gippsland says close to 170 millimetres. Still can't drive the side-by-side in quite a few paddocks as I'd have to leave it there. I'm really tired.
of mud and slop. Craig at MacArthur in South West Vic, 47 millimetres for October. Trent at Gifford West, 142.2 for October. Still says I could use another 50 to grow grass. Still 180 short of average. It's been an interesting year. Oh, two right. 183 in, in sale for Shane, 54.25 in October in Walbundry. Uh, 58 millimetres just north of Albury for Trent and Cameron's had 27 millimetres at Marbled north of Birchip. Soft finish for crops, he says. Thank you for all of those figures and more. We'll catch you tomorrow on the Country Hour. It's one o'clock now.